This is an important part. We never asked anybody for money on these videos. We we're just kind of sharing what we did and people were attracted to us. Hello and welcome to Pillars of Wealth Creation, where we talk about creating financial success with a special focus on business and real estate. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. Now, let's get to it. Hello, welcome back to Pillars of Wealth Creation. I'm your host, Todd Dexheimer. With me, excited to have Ruben Grath. Ruben, how are you doing today? Woohoo, dude, I'm stoked. I'm stoked, <laughs> man. It's the holidays. Life is good. Capital raising on Ted Todd Dexheimer's show. So I'm pumped up to be here, man. Yeah. Life is definitely good. Life is great. We were just talking before the show, a little bit of a ski, snowboarding, mm -hmm. and, and uh, looking forward to getting out, hitting the mountains. So life is fantastic. So a little bit about Ruben. He's got a popular podcast about raising money for multifamily syndication called the Capital Razor Show. And I've been on there. So it's been a pleasure to be on mm -hmm. the show. Uh, and that's a great show if you want to learn about syndicating and learn from some of the best syndicators in the country. Uh, in the beginning of 2018, and this is, this is kind of <laughs> funny, Ruben had no clue what syndication was. He thought it was uh, a Chinese food. No. <laughs> Hilarious. Since then, he's participated in acquisitions of 190 units has now become a fund manager who is building 98 townhomes in Louisiana and partaking in the acquisition of a 670-unit portfolio mm, crazy. of workforce multifamily in Kentucky and North Carolina. And he got started by doing just social media videos for local apartment investor in Phoenix and successfully raised $625,000 for small multifamily deals during the post crash buying frenzy. So with that said, Ruben, let's, let's talk a little bit. I mean, you know, not, I think there's so many people that still don't even have a clue what the word syndication is. Of course, my mm -hmm. audience is very familiar with it. Uh, and your audience, of course, as well. But yep. uh, let, let's talk, let's dive in a little bit more about your <laughs> background. And then and then we can, uh, we can hit on syndication a bit. So I started after graduating college, trying to figure out a way to forge my way into real estate and thought, Oh, well, I'll just go so did, get, did you always want, like you just said, you said you started like from college where you, so you were interested in real estate right away? Oh uh, no. So like when I was a kid, my dad used to drive me around to his rental properties, collecting the rent. And he told me, you know, cause I would, my, I admired him for being a doctor and he was this politician that had these crazy parties where he'd play mariachi music and had all these like really important people there. But he always told me, I made my money in real estate. It wasn't as a doctor, it wasn't as a military corporal, had nothing to do with politics. It was real estate that got mm. me, you know, got us this portfolio that he's leaving to our family as a legacy. And I was like, well, how do I get into this? And I really didn't know because he died when I was young. So I was like, there's no other entrepreneurs in my family besides my dad. So like everybody's just like, go get a job do the normal stuff. And then I was like, no, like I want to do what dad did. Like I, he was a real estate investor. And so eventually I was like, let me try mortgages. Maybe this will be a good stepping stone. All I learned was, you know, financing techniques and selling, you know, mortgages that didn't really help. But I did come across this group that taught real estate here in Phoenix. And then they had a class on multifamily. I started a meetup to kind of promote and connect people together. 
And this one dude came into town and he had a bankruptcy. He had lost all his money in spec homes during the crash, but he was buying a fourplex every other week in town. And I was like, how are you doing this? He's like, well, well, obviously I can't finance it because I got a bankruptcy. So I'm raising money for it right now during this specific time in history. This is going to be the biggest transfer of wealth that we're ever going to experience in our lives. Everything is rock bottom right now. We can buy units at like $17,000 a door for a two bedroom, one bath. You know, it was just ridiculous prices. And you could basically purchase it, put out, put a renter in there or a resident and then cash flow astronomically, at least during this particular time frame. So he was buying a bunch of units and I said, okay, well, I don't know how to raise the capital side. Is it cool if I just follow you around, do shoot some videos of you? And basically you can tell people how you found it, how you negotiated the contract, how you got it for less than what it, the offer price was, et cetera, et cetera. And we shared a bunch of these messages and videos on YouTube. And over a period of nine to 12 months, people were just like, oh, damn, you know, this seems like a really great model. Instead of me trying to duplicate your model, how about I give you some money and we can partner on this? And we never asked anybody. This is an important part. We never asked anybody for money on these videos. We we're just kind of sharing what we did and people were attracted to us. So they would, and, and, and it's not like you can just kind of say, hey, you know, come have lunch with me and then invest $100,000 with me or whatever. Like right. we had to court these people, take them, let them touch the physical assets, have them review our business model. But over a period of 12 months, we raised like $600,000. And my partner was just like, damn, dude, you just raised like $600,000 off YouTube. How, you know, why don't you focus on that? We don't need two acquisition specialists. You focus on this. I'll focus on micromanaging all of the contractors and, and getting this thing and rented and all of that. And so I did, and I wanted to go crazy with it. And he's like, yeah, go full blown. So I hired like these guys that were going to write a book for us. And we were going to do a CD drip CD system and a drip campaign and go on tour. And I even hired this like producer from San Diego to come in and we we're going to do a pilot show that we were going to pitch to A&E because everybody's show was on fix and flip and nobody was really doing generational wealth with wealthy family. And then I like had all this investing and marketing dollars into this kind of thing that I wanted to do. And then he was so busy micromanaging these contractors that he started not showing up. And then I started getting angry with him and we started kind of butting heads. And then I kind of left. And because I was a marketer, not necessarily a real estate investor that was promoting somebody else's business, I didn't know how to do all the real estate stuff on my own and didn't have the confidence. I still had limiting beliefs that like, even though I had accomplished my first deal, and they say that there's this law of the first deal, I didn't experience that because I wasn't on the investing side. I was on the marketing side, which now I refer to as capital raising. And I ended up you know, selling off all my properties, made a good profit, made money for all of my investors, but could not repeat the process on my own. Ended up back in corporate America and could not handle being behind a desk. So eventually I quit, went down into Mexico to kind of regroup spent a year down there camping on the beach and then found a little place in Playa del Carmen, stayed about a year, came back, met this really beautiful lady before I came back. And then she ended up being my wife and inspired me to get back into real estate. But all I knew was fourplexes, 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 12 plexes. I'm going to buy a fourplex. This is the model that I created. I'm going to buy a fourplex. I'm going to pay down the equity. 
I'm going to multiply my portfolio, you know, once every two years, I'll go from one fourplexes to two to four to eight to 16 to 32, and I'll be done. Yep. And I presented this plan to somebody at a real estate, you know, like a local investor RIA. And they're like, well, why don't you just take down 128 units right now? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I have zero <laughs> units. Like, how do you go from zero to 128 in one shot? And they're like, well, first of all, stop trying to do this by yourself. Join some team members, put together this thing that we refer to as syndication, which essentially just means getting a group of people together that have the same common goal and then take down these huge deals together instead of you trying to do this whole thing by yourself. So I found a local mom and pop syndicator. They were doing heavy lift stuff in Tucson and I interviewed them and I'm like, how do I put together my real estate team, my syndication team? I'm still learning about this. And they're like, well, what do you care? I'm like, well, I, you know, I've raised some money on social media. I see multifamily as a tool for creating generational wealth. I want to get into it. And they're like, wait, what? You raised money on social media? We need somebody that does that. Come on board with us, raise capital for us. And I still didn't really know the whole process. So I figured because I read Joe Fairless's book, you know, the best ever apartment syndication book, it said on the capital raising portions of that book, go start a interview-based thought leadership platform. So I'm like, well, if I'm going to do a podcast, I might as well do one on the topic that most interests me, which is capital raising. So right. that was the inception of the Capital Raiser show. And over a period of about two years, you know, I interviewed all these sponsors, interviewed all these capital raisers and started contemplating, how do I put these guys together, these capital raisers and these sponsors and facilitate this transaction to make money. And I was interviewing attorneys and they kept on saying the same thing. If you want to do this, the only way that you can legally compliantly do it within SEC guidelines is you have to start your own fund. So that seed was planted. Eventually I outgrew that little mom and pop team, which is a great team. And I'm very grateful to them. Shout out to Bakerson for hooking me up with my first chance at learning syndication. But I, eventually went off to go launch my own fund. And then somebody that I had interviewed said, Hey, I've already raised $20 million. You have all this national exposure from your show. And, you know, because you're mentored by these guys that teach automations and marketing and rebranding and all these things that are really important for capital raising, I don't want to do that stuff. Like, why don't you join me? You bring all that stuff and the exposure to us. We'll create this new company and I did. I'm like, yeah, that, you know, I don't have to go start my own fund. I don't have to start my own website. Let me join forces with you. And, you know, just like since this was just like five months ago, I joined forces with him. We're in the middle of three capital raises right now. One of them, you know, we kind of have two branches of our business. We're building our own townhomes that we're essentially going to build a portfolio of 98 units rent them out, sell them to an institution. And that's part of our business. The other part of our business is we go and raise capital for other syndicating sponsors. And we have a couple of deals that we're raising for right now. And I'm in the middle of a bunch of stuff. And now all of a sudden, you know, because I'm not limited to these little Arizona deals, I have deal, I have access to these sponsors and deals across the country. Now I'm raising for like a 670 unit portfolio out in Kentucky. And it's a portfolio that also consists of some deals in North Carolina. Um, and then, you know, we're taking on all these new sponsors, you know, occasionally if they, you know, can get 
get through our vetting process, we like to work all over the country in Texas, particularly, and it's an exciting time. And I just like started pulling in a lot of my business comes from capital raisers because that's what my show's about. So I get these capital raisers, Hey, how do we raise capital for you? Oh, well, let's make you a part owner of our fund. And then we'll invest with the best sponsors together. And then you can have access to all of our systems. You won't have to start your own security and your own fund. You can just become a part of ours. We'll handle all that. And then if you have a database of investors, we can all raise together. And then, you know, so this is how the whole magic started to begin to happen. And it's a lot of fun considering that like just a few years ago, I didn't know anything about this industry. It's kind right. of crazy how fast you can scale in this business. So it's a lot of fun, man. That's great. That's great. Yeah. You thought it was a Chinese food, right? <laughs> um, so when you started, I mean, you, how, how long was it between the YouTube channel and the podcast? Oh, a long time. So the YouTube channel was 2009, 10 and 11. And then oh, okay. when I, when I separated from my partner, I went back to corporate American 12 and 13, went down into Mexico in 14, came back in 15 to the United States, tried to sell houses for a couple of years. That sucked. Um, started a furniture business. And then once I got married in 2018, 2019, somewhere around there, I. You should remember that. Well, so we're about to celebrate our third anniversary here in, yeah. in a month. Um, so I guess that was 2019, 2019, 2021, 20, and then 22 will be a third year. Um, we, so we got back together in 2018 and that's when I kind of got inspired and then was like, okay, so I know fourplexes, let me go talk to people about this and start building a network. Yeah. And then they introduced me to this thing called syndication. And that's, so, that's the whole thing. So let's, let's talk. Uh, I got a couple of questions then off, off of this. Uh, you mentioned the vetting process. I want to hit on that. Um, that mm. um, but I want to talk a little bit about capital raising and some of the strategies that you've been able to implement. Obviously, part of the podcast is an education experience for you. You're meeting oh, a lot dude, of people that are sure. Yeah. Right. So, so you're meeting a lot of people that are doing syndication that, that, are somehow associated with it. Um, and obviously another motivation is for you to, to continue to grow your investor database, uh, grow relationships, find partners to, to so it's, I, I can see it as being a very good source. Um, but anyways, I, the question was, let's talk about some of the, um, some of the key principles that you utilize in your business to be able to raise money. So I don't know if you've got like a, a top five or a top mm -hmm. three or anything like that, but let's, yeah. let's hit on some of those. I, I study capital raising on a regular basis from lawyers and from capital raisers. So I've learned from the best of the best and I've definitely been able to integrate some of those things into my business, but let's, before we go down that road and I promise to come back to it, I want to mention that, you know, like when I first started, I was raising joint venture capital mm. and that's very different than limited partner capital. So you bring people, even though you don't have any money in the deal on these small four plexes or 12 plexes, you basically get the entire thing, either finances or funded by somebody else other than you. Right. And then when you move into the world of syndication, the first thing that I learned in the first 50 shows or so was all about like, 
how do you raise capital for syndication? Is it the same thing? Is it different? And I found out that it's not anything like raising from joint ventures, right? So you have to educate, nurture, and spend a lot of time to build systems to share your message with people and nurture them and educate them on this process if you go that route. The other things that I learned eventually was that this is not the only way to raise capital. You can raise from institutions, family offices, and all kinds of different ways from broker dealers in some cases, but limited partner capital isn't the only way. Eventually I found out that you can raise from co-GPs and even on another level, raise from capital raisers. And you know the attorney will be like, don't use that word, that's like scary. Like, if you get paid a commission to raise capital, you're going to go to jail. And I'm just like, well, that's not what we're doing. I'm free to talk about this on the show because I do know what I'm doing. I'm not a lawyer, but I do know that if I have a fund because you guys have advised me as much, I can bring them into my fund. They can become part owners of our fund. They can underwrite deals. They can have ongoing investor relations. And that fulfills the entire duties of their ownership position in addition to the equity that they raise. And so like all of these things kind of came into play, right? But if we're going back to the limited partner style of raising capital, which I think most people in the syndication space are very interested to learn, it really boils down to a few things that I've learned from my mentors, which is, first of all, you can't raise capital today from people that you have not spoken to yesterday, right? So you have to educate, nurture them, and then have this omnipresence and multiple touch points where they see you at a conference, they see you at a meetup, they see, they see and hear your voice on a podcast, you know, either you have a book or a blog or your social media presence. And, and very importantly, people are hearing about you and what people say about you when you're not in the room is really how they define you and what your brand is. So when they see you and, and feel you and hear you and look at your track record because you posted closings about this or that, and they see all these touch points and they hear about you from different places and hear your voice on your own podcast, this like entire process of getting people to hear your voice or see you and get to know you in a variety of places is one of the major key principles to raising capital. You know, just because you're connected to 10,000 people on LinkedIn, if they don't know what you do, that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to raise capital. Right. These people have to know what you're up to. And if you can get that point across and nurture and educate them on whatever it is that you're doing, you know, whether that's value add multifamily or, you know, in some cases it's like, it's like assisted living or storage or mobile home parks or RV parks or whatever it is that you're doing. You know, in our case, we're trying to go into this built to rent space and a lot of our database has been nurtured for multifamily value add. So yep. we have to kind of reteach them like why is uh, some of these other asset classes or different styles of multifamily better or different than what we're used to, right? Because most people are familiar with the Joe Fairless of the world and the value add kind of stuff or A-class stuff that they do, but they don't know, you know, like, what is it, what do you mean you're going to build out 98 townhomes and run it like a multifamily and then sell it to an institution? I don't understand that. Like, I understand living in an apartment, you know, because I've lived in one or I know somebody that has, but I don't understand and get this whole 
why is built to rent? Isn't that like a single family investing? I thought, you know, like, isn't this about multifamily? So you have to educate, nurture people in whatever it is that you're doing and teach them, hey, you know, maybe the, the value add or the multifamily deals are drying up and here's why assisted living or here's why build to rent is such a, you know, a great tool. You know, first of all, you have a greater deal of control and there's more, you know, potential cash flow or other kind of benefits or back end benefits and returns and you're not competing with people at the same level and if you're a capital raiser like me or a fund manager, like, dude, I don't want to compete with the Zach Captain stalls of the world and try and beat him out on the price of his, you know, that his ability to acquire stuff here in Phoenix. Like, I want to just op- invest with the best operators, work with them, and then focus on my superpower, which is the money, you know, and the equities side. So yeah. these are some of the things that I've learned along the way. Yeah, I think the 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 that education, I, I've, I've seen it. I mean, I, I'm still buying multifamily, but that's what I would always talk about is multifamily. And so then when I start buying assisted living or I bought a uh, flex space this year and I've got to go raise for this flex space and my investors are silent. Mm-hmm. Guys, like this, these numbers, that, that was especially the case. I think the flex space versus the multifamily, they're like to- two totally different universes. Mm-hmm. And I just raised like five and a half million dollars in just a, just a, like just a couple days on the multifamily. And then I can't get my investors to jump on board on a, it was like a $3 million raise on this flex space yep. and like pulling teeth just to get them to get on board. Yet the returns on the flex space are way yep. better. <laughs> That's way, how it works. The man. whole deal is way more attractive, but they just aren't ready for it. They're, they're not educated they're not or nurtured educated. on it. Yeah. Yeah. And same thing with the assisted living, you know, I'm, I, we've added that arm and, and that's, that's been okay. Now I'm, I'm, now I'm talking more a lot about it because I, I saw what happened with the flex space and I'm like, I gotta, I gotta make sure they know what I'm doing here. Yeah, I think there's a comfort level too. It's not only the education, mm-hmm. but it's the comfort. Like, Hey, you're a multifamily guy. And all of a sudden you're bringing me this flex space. Like, what do you know about that? Why, why, why should I invest in that? You're a multifamily guy, you know? Yeah. People are going to question you as soon as you shift and adapt. And, you know, as real estate investors, we have to pivot and adapt and evolve and change yeah. over time. If we keep on doing the same thing over and over, we'll get left in the dust. Yeah. Right. So, but we as investors, as active investors, have to move faster than the passive investors. They're still kind of a little bit behind, you know, like in the trends. They're still seeing stuff and thinking about stuff that they learned three years ago. And, you know, just because the return is better doesn't mean that they're educated or nurtured to understand what it is that you're trying to teach them. So it does require a great deal of patience, even though you may make them better deals, they still want to be very comfortable. And part of that is them understanding what the business model is. So when you introduce a new business model or a new asset class or a new direction and you pivot and evolve and understand yourself as an active investor, that there's a lot more money to be made in these different categories of multifamily. The limited partner database is maybe not up to speed quite at the level that you are. So that's why, you know, you have to spend all this extra time teaching and nurturing 
and getting people to, to jump on board with you because people don't invest specifically because of the returns. They invest because they feel comfortable and because they think that one specific thing is going to get them what they really are after because they're never going to invest in a building for the sake of investing in buildings. They're yeah. going to invest in something because there's some emotional need that's being satisfied, whether it's yeah, like to put so their kids right there. Right. So their, their, their kids need to go to college or they, you know, their parents are going to need additional time or they want to get out of their W2 or their business and spend time on the beach. There's some kind of emotional thing that they're seeking and they don't invest just because the building makes money. So they don't care if Todd Dexheimer, Ruben Greth comes up with this new strategy. They want to feel safe. They want to feel like their money is going to work. And what they understand has worked in the past is that's they want to repeat that process. So it does take time to get them the information and educate them on, you know, these new things that are available to them that make them more money than what they're used to doing. But they still won't they won't leave unless they feel real comfortable. So. Yeah, that's so valuable. You've got to, you've got to make sure they're comfortable. As you said, they're not necessarily, do they want good returns? Absolutely. But that's not what's the most important to 95 or more percent of investors. I mean, 95 or more percent of the investors are looking for something that they feel is going to be a good, solid investment, but it's going to be safe. And it's mm-hmm. going to be able to provide them whatever that is that they're looking for, which, you know, you mentioned several things that it could be. And obviously there's many, many other things. So I love that. Um, Talk about institutions. You you mentioned institutions and family offices, stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Um, What's your, what's your knowledge within that? What's your experience um, with, with raising and with, you know, different other than just a yeah. regular single there, partner. there's there's benefits and problems with working with these single checks you know these guys that stroke these big checks in one situation you know you're thinking about building out a limited partner database and it takes time to do this yeah right so if you can find somebody that can stroke you a check you no longer have to deal with 70 or 100 investors and everything and all the headache that has, you know, and the counting that that ha- that has to do and all the nurturing and acquiring of those investors, which is, you know, a problem, but there's specific problems with working with institutions too, or big, you know, even a, a broker dealer or a family office or something, some other person of great interest. You know, a lot of times they have these like Wharton MBAs and other people that are managing their family money. And if you put together a plan for execution, then there's any kind of deviation. Oh, you know, there's some unexpected expense for additional roofing. Then you have to answer to them. They're very nitpicky and they don't like any deviation from your original plan. Hmm. And they also want to write into the contract. Hey, if you misperform, we have the ability to vote you out and you get kicked out of this. They want control. They want to cut out your fees. They want you to make less money per transaction than you would if you dealt with all of these limited partners. So that's kind of a drawback. But if you have massive deal flow and you can take down a bunch of deals, then it may make sense for you to work with an institution. You know, They won't offer to fund you unless they can stroke a 5 to $10 million check. But if you're doing deals in that size 
And now all of a sudden somebody likes you. They're probably, if they do like you, they're probably going to tell their friends too. And then all of a sudden you have more capital and you can take down, even though you're making less per transaction or per deal that you're doing, you can take them down back to back to back to back to back and not worry about where the money is coming from. So that is a benefit, but at the cost of the fact that you're going to be micromanaged, you're going to have less control and you're not going to get as much in fees. They're going to cut out your fees. So, and you know, like one thing I've heard on my show from these people that do choose to go with institutions is sometimes they're not cognizant of the fact that these guys can, they have multiple options. They don't just necessarily need you. So if they commit to bring in a $10 million check and then they find a deal that's better than your deal, they don't have any problem leaving you hanging at the table. And, you know, you've, you've, almost gotten to the closing table and all of a sudden your money disappears and then you're scrambling for this money. So it's important to make sure that they have some skin in the game. You know, the money's in the account already and, or they will lose earnest money or some kind of transactional negotiated fee if they split out. So that's important to consider because people can just be like, oh yes, I found something better, Todd, you know, I apologize. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, I got to take care of my own investors too. Yeah, no, I could see that. I mean, look, if you're going to put a, a $40 million deal under contract, you're going to have to put some good earnest money to get that deal. So if somebody's going to be telling you they're going to give you $10 million, well, you might want some good amount of earnest money from them to ensure they're going to actually give you that $10 million. Yep. Uh, maybe, maybe cover, uh, the earnest money check that you had to put in or, or close to it or something like that, because that, that's a huge deal. Could you imagine uh, a $10 million equity partner leaving you high and dry a, a week before closing? I've heard horror stories that are basically that. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and they have every right to do that unless you've, well, and, and unless you, you've got some sort of recourse, which quite likely you don't unless you have their, some of their money or all of their money. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah, I haven't gone that route. I don't love the idea of, um, I don't love the idea of having somebody that gets a lot of control. You're right. Uh, just because <laughs> I don't have a job anymore. I'm not working for somebody. And now I do work for my investors, right? But just uh, having somebody that has that much control feels like now you're working a job. I feel like I've I just, just, I don't know. Just, it just doesn't sit well with me, I guess. Yeah, no, no entrepreneur, if they got into entrepreneurship so they could have freedom wants to then be micromanaged by some work MBA. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you there. Um, <clears throat> what's a mistake that you've made uh, and how have you learned from it? So on the capital raising side, since, since that's kind of my niche, I would say that, you know, some of the first mistakes that I learned was that just because you have a great deal that makes greater returns than what the Joe Fairlisses are offering, that just because it pencils on paper, that doesn't mean that people are going to flock to your deals, mm. you know? So that's, it doesn't matter because here's what the trendy LP likes. They want big deals in big markets 
that cash flow from day one that don't deviate from the norm of what their friends think is safe. And if you're doing a heavy lift value add in a little market that's not cash flowing from day one, that deviates from what all the other LP friends of theirs are doing, even though the returns may be greater, that does not mean that they're going to invest. So one of the big things is like, you got to, you know, you know, we learned the painful ways. We got to survey our investors to make sure that what we are providing them is something that they want instead of, Hey, let's just put together this deal that pencils that makes all this financial sense and then pitch that to people because that might not be what they're looking for. So I would say like one of the biggest lessons was like to go and survey my investors, find out what it is that they want, and then go and provide them with what it is that they want. Cause that's part of the key to, to capital raising. Hey, if I found you a deal that met your criteria, would you invest? If they say yes, then you know you're onto something. Yeah. But when you just, without asking them, say, oh, I got this, you know, 24% IRR and a heavy lift in Sierra, you know, whatever, some little town in the middle of nowhere, they're just like, oh, well, first of all, I don't know anything about that market. Yeah. I don't know any investors that invest in that place. And on top of that, you're saying it's not going to cash flow. Well, that's not what I wanted. I really wanted something that cash flows from the beginning, you know, so then you have to, at that point, it's too late to re-educate them and nurture them and you're stuck, right? So the, what are the other major well, give, things? Give me, a, give me a 12 IRR in Austin, Texas, and give me a 24 IRR in Cleveland, Ohio, and I will be able to fill Austin, Texas five times faster yeah. than I can fill Cleveland, Ohio. That's an important point. You know, The yeah. other thing that like I really learned is that Communication is probably the most important part of this whole thing. Yeah, and under talked right? about. Because most people, like if you ask them, hey, are you going to reinvest with, with you know, your existing sponsor? If they say no, it's probably not because they didn't make money. It's probably because their investor experience sucked, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't get communicated with. They got $50,000 on the line. It's part of their nest egg or their whole nest egg. Hopefully not that. But they just need to hear what's going on. Like, especially at nighttime, if they're working their W-2 and they're in their pajamas, they want to know what's going on. And there's no portal. They can't pop in there and see, you know, what, what's been going on with the money. And then they call you and then you're not answering. You're not responding to them. They send an email and then they're not getting anything back. That is super stressful for the investor. Yep. So that is a, a key part. And when we're out vetting operators, one of the most important things that I want to know is like how many of their investors that have worked with them in the past are repeating? Are they coming back? And if that number is low, that probably means there's some kind of communication issue. So when you hear 70 to 90% return investors, that is like, oh, okay, good. So like that, yeah. that solves a lot of my internal turmoil of whether or not I should invest with you. Um, and one more thing that's, that's really important to me, like, we used to understand that like branding and communicating and marketing were really important, but we would never implement it into our business. So when we had a new deal, it was all hands on deck, raise capital, raise capital. Like, don't worry about the website rebranding. We'll do that next time. And then it would never get done. And you'd still be living in the dark ages and not being able to compete 
in terms of your image, your brand image and your communications with anybody else. So when I finally left my old company and, and got to my new company, I said, hey, the very first thing that is a requirement for me to join here is that we rebrand and that we implement all these automations and things because the last thing I want to do is be a part of a company that that is not important to. Like if we want to get to the Annie Dickerson levels and the Todd Dexheimer levels, like we need to have our stuff on point and they agreed, right? So I'm like, sweet, all right, let's do this. You know, so yep. we implemented all that stuff and brought some team members on to help us with it. But that's a huge, huge, huge part that I cannot stress enough is like, if your website sucks and it's got pictures of buildings and there's no emotional, you know, things that lure you in, if there's, if it's just like hypotheticals and return structures, even on your webinars, if there's no emotional things that are satisfying the investor, that's really a problem. If you're not walking them through story brand where you're making them the hero and you're like, oh, well, I'm the hero. Look at me and look at my track record and what I've done in the past. Like you're not really tapping into their emotional requirements and the things that they need to do for their own family, like creating generational wealth for themselves and creating legacy. So all of those things are so, so important when it comes to, if you really want to grow and help a lot of people and that stuff takes a back burner, that's, that's, uh, that's going to be a major headache for a lot of people. I think that's super important. You just mentioned there that you, you got, I think you, uh, kind of mentioned building a story brand. Is that, is that the book you were talking about? Yeah. Donald Miller's book, Donald story Miller's brand. Book. Right. I mean, what an excellent book. And it made me rethink how we were doing our slide decks when we're sitting there pitching our investors mm-hmm. and we're talking for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to these investors, which was way too long. And we're talking about the numbers for about 35 of those minutes, because we thought that was the most important part Wow. and, and going no, that almost has zero to do with the deal. Yes. The investors, the, the, the engineer type that care about the numbers, they will dig into those numbers on their own yeah. time. The other ones don't even care about the numbers. They maybe heard you mention something, but they want to know what's going on with the deal. And now when we present a deal and I'm sure you do the same thing, we want it to feel like our investors have actually been to the property. We want to make it feel like our investors are moving their kids into that property or they're moving themselves into that property. Now you're building a story. Now you're building something of excitement. We want to show them how we're changing the community um, and the good that we're doing. That's so much more powerful than showing them that they're going to get a 16 IRR and, you know, 7% cash on cash return. It's totally true. If people do not feel like they are being heard and are participating in some way, in some capacity, and they are not being treated as a person, you know, of interest when this whole thing does, people want to make the emotional decision and then justify it with logic. And the justification part comes after they've made the decision Say yes. Okay. So if you guys can meet my numerical standards, then I will complete the process. But the decision, the emotional decision, yes, I want to invest in this deal is done first. And then they just need to verify. But when you're trying to get them to verify with no emotional reason for them to invest, it's, it's kind of like you're doing it backwards is what I've discovered. Yeah. Love it. 
Um, lots of good stuff, Ruben. Um, we're going to wrap up here, but any last thoughts about capital raising? Um, any last, last um, nuggets that you want to give to our audience before we do wrap up? So decide one thing that you want to be good at and then focus on that. I think a lot of people, especially if they go to these gurus, they want to, they get taught all of these things to become a well-rounded syndicator where they understand underwriting, they understand acquisitions and dealing with brokers. And then the capital raising part is a portion of it, but it's not really emphasized. Like find one of those pieces and just like dig in and really dial in your processes. If you're interested in the capital raising side, you know, spend a lot of time reading capital raising books. There's a bunch of them out there by Richard C. Wilson and Hunter Thompson, and a bunch of other guys. Read those and then understand that specific niche or listen to the capital raiser yeah. show or whatever. You know, I think there's a couple of syndicators that have, or I should say syndication attorneys that have done started capital raising shows. Um, just get as much information about it and then hang out with other people that are already good at it and model them is yeah. what I would say. So yeah, that that's it. one thing that I would push. That's awesome. Lo love that. Great advice. Um, okay. A couple last questions, Ruben, what's a favorite book that you can recommend to our listeners? So my very favorite book that changed my entire world is a book by Wayne Dyer called the power of intention, which really kind of, has you hone in on like creating peace for yourself because if you're like go 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 and then you're just never really focusing on yourself i think you can kind of get lost in the shuffle and have all these ups and downs but that book really kind of let me hone in on being at peace in this process of capital raising which can be extremely stressful if you're not in the right mindset and you're not doing the right things for the people that you're trying to serve yeah love it all right. So last question, what are your three pillars of wealth creation? Yeah, I heard this on one of your previous shows and I took some notes. Um, one was the first thing that I said, focus on one thing, become really good at it. And hopefully it's something that you're very passionate about and you're not doing it just to make money. The other part is hang out with people that are smarter than you and can bring skill sets that you do not have. And the third part, I believe is absolutely the most important pillar of wealth, which I would say is practice the golden rule, which is to be in integrity with your source, with your God, even when you're not in church, when people are not looking, if you can be in integrity with yourself and be a good person in general and of a pleasing personality, it's going to open so many more doors when you're trying to help people. If you're just yeah. focused on yourself and what's in it for you, then that's going to prevent you from connecting with people. Yeah. Be of service do stuff for them without ex any expectation of anything in return and treat them as the, you know, the way that you would want to be treated. Yep. Yep. So valuable right there. Easy to get caught up in, in yourself and, and stop and not think, stop to think about others, but uh, people are going to do business with people they know, like, and trust. And that's how you're going to build it. So yeah, it. that's true. Todd. Awesome, man. Well, Ruben, again, really appreciate you joining us. How can our listeners get in touch with you? I would say that the best option would be LinkedIn. They could check out some of my sites, like my business site is legacyacquisitions.com or my 
show is at capitalraisershow.com. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, or I should say uh, also on Instagram and on Facebook. Awesome. And those are the, the best places, I would say. Awesome. We'll, we'll throw a couple of links in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Um, man, been a lot of, a lot of, a lot of fun, a lot of good value you have added. Uh, of course, there's so much more. So if you guys want to learn more about uh, capital raising, more about Ruben, um, you know, reach out to him, join him on his show. Uh, you'll learn a ton. So it's, it's been uh, a lot of fun being on your uh, show. I think I was on twice. So it's been a lot of yeah. fun being on it. And uh, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you coming on, man. Definitely honored to be here, man. Thanks you for inviting me. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I appreciate you being a loyal listener. Say, I would love to have you go on to our Facebook page and subscribe. Uh, give us a thumbs up. Go on to iTunes or wherever you listen and give us a rating and review. Don't forget to subscribe. It's a rating and review. Just helps us push this out to more and more people and continue to grow our audience and hopefully positively affect a ton of people out there that really need this and, and want this. So uh, the other thing I've got for you is a free ebook on my website. So go on to venturedproperties.com, venturedproperties.com and download our free ebook on real estate and on syndication. And I've got some data points in there, some really good stuff for you. So I'd love to have you take a look at that. It's free. I'm not expecting anything from it. Uh, and also look, if you want some help in multifamily, want some help learning, growing, getting your business off the ground, I would love to talk to you about what it would look like, uh, to work with me potentially and see if that's a good fit. So you can go to coachwithdex.com and check that out. And, uh, we can definitely have a, uh, a call. Thanks a lot for listening. You make it a fantastic rest of the day. I'll catch you on the next episode.